0: Welcome to this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. In today's episode, we have two stories from our April 2018 live event. The first is from Ron Boynton, who back in the 1980s came face-to-face with a polar bear in Barrow, now called Utkiavik.
1: My first thought was, I know what I'll do. I'm going to shoot the bear in the eye, and I'll stay on that side so we won't be able to see me. (laughs) And I thought... No, no, I'm not that great a shot. <laughs> so,
0: And we have a story from Dr. Jesse Robertson, who went on a solo hike that did not go quite to plan.
2: At this point, I'm absolutely soaked to the bone. I'm shaking. I'm shivering really hard. I'd run out of food. I didn't feel like drinking water anymore. I was exhausted. I was not anticipating running this far that day, but I kept going. And then I started to see the fresh bear tracks and realized maybe running isn't the greatest idea. I was afraid something would give chase, so I did sort of this speed walk jog thing.
0: Run for your life, up next on Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. Ron Boynton and his family moved to the village of Utkiavik, formerly known as Barrow, Alaska, back in the 1980s to work with kids at the church up there. In the middle of January one year, he decided it would be fun to load up a bunch of kids in a big van and drive them out to the point, since kids there were pretty amused with the idea of driving around in cars because they didn't get a whole lot of opportunities to do so. Here's Ron Boyden.
1: We'd spent a few months there, and it was in in January, and it was pretty dark and pretty cold, and uh, one snowplow, I think, in Barrow was out during that day because it was kind of windy, and he went down the road towards the point. Now, the point is about 14 miles past Barrow, but the road only goes seven miles. And at this particular day, uh, this driver, I think he decided to just go all the way, so he made a road all the way to the point, and 14 miles out. So that evening, we are sitting at home and uh, watching TV and whatnot, and I don't know if you remember Ratnet, but that's what we got to watch. It was one channel, uh, and it was tape delayed, and so when you... uh, if you were in Christmas, you would get Thanksgiving, Macy's Day Parade on it, you know? So so anyway, we were there, and I had heard that they put this road all the way out there. So I told my wife, you know what? I've never been to the point. I think that I'll take my son, and we'll get some kids, and we'll go all the way out to this point. And so we got ready, and I got the van. And on a whim, I thought, I'm going to take this rifle. I had a 30 30 it, the stock was all busted up, and the the barrel was rusted and I had one bullet and so I thought that 's all I need so <laughs> so I put the bullet in my pocket, and I stuck the gun in by the seat, and we proceeded to go and uh, it wasn't long when we had 18 or 19 kids in this vehicle, and we we would drive down the road, and we would tell stories, and we would uh, laugh and, and sing, and we just have fun. And so I told my wife, if I'm not back by 11, send somebody out for us. We're probably stuck or whatever. And so we went out, and, and we started driving, and we got to the end of the, end of the dirt road, and we got onto the onto the snow road there that he had plowed. And we had gone about four or five miles down this road, and there, about 20 yards off, I noticed a seal. And it wasn't any ordinary seal. It was uh, a or it was a bearded seal. And these seals weigh anywhere between 400 and 500 pounds. And by this seal was a white fox, and he was eating. And so I stopped the van, and we watched this scene going on for 15 or 20 minutes and a seal ran away and it never dawned on me why would a seal leave a great meal like that and run away from it but i didn't know i didn't think so you the wind the was fox. pardon me you mean the fox. yes why did the fox run away i'm sorry <laughs> it was the fox that ran away <laughs> so anyway the wind was blowing and there was drifting on the road a little bit so i decided to turn around so I turned the wheel and I made a sharp left, and as I went that way, the front wheels went off the plowed area and got stuck in the soft snow. Well, I knew that wasn't a problem. I have 19 kids in the car, (laughs) and so I said, everybody out? and we're gonna you guys can push me out and so there was a sliding door on the side and a passenger door and all 18 or 19 kids went out and they got in the front of the truck and or the van and they were ready to push and all of a sudden somebody yells, Nanook! and all 19 kids try to get in that van at one time (laughs) they were climbing over each other and trying to get in there and whatnot and uh, broke out one of the windows on that sliding door. And they kind of pushed it in and uh, so forth. And so we all got in, we're safe. The bear's over there about 20 yards and he's eating on that carcass and we're okay. I told my wife at 11 o'clock, it's about nine o'clock and we'll just sit here for a couple hours and uh, somebody will come get us and we'll be okay. About an hour later, it was getting pretty cold in there. and. It was 30 below, and the wind was blowing from that direction, and the girls in there, the younger kids in in the van, started to get scared, they started to get cold, they started to cry. And I knew that I should probably do something. And so I formulated a plan. Now, the oldest person besides me in the van was a young lady named Marjorie. And I turned to her and I said, okay, Marjorie, you're gonna drive. Now, I didn't take into consideration that she'd never sat in a driver's seat and she's never steered anything, and so, but she was the oldest, so I had her come up front. I said, now, I'm gonna take my gun and I'm gonna walk between the van and the polar bear and I'll protect you. And uh, the rest of you kids get out and you'll push and you'll get out of the thing and I'll run out to you and we'll be good. We'll be gone. So, (laughs) I gave Marjorie um, the quickest driving lesson ever. (laughs) R means reverse, D means drive, that's the brake, that's the gas, you're on your own. (laughs) Now, if you've ever watched Andy Griffith, and you see that he would give Barney one bullet for his gun, (laughs) and when Andy said, okay, you can load it up, he would. (laughs) And that was me outside that van trying to get that bullet in there. And I got the bullet into the side, side chamber there, and I'm set, so I can do this. I, turn, I walk in front of the van, and I go about 10 yards, and the bear's eating that carcass right there, and I plant myself with my gun, right like this. I didn't think to aim at him, <laughs> pull the trigger back, get ready. I stood there, I can do this. And so, I'm, I'm content, I mean, I'm intent, I'm going to take care of these kids. And uh, I could hear them quietly get out of the van. I could hear the van backing up, and I thought, okay, we're good. I, and at this time, the bear noticed something, and he got up on all four paws. And I'm thinking, this is not a good situation, this is a big bear. But we're okay. I turned my head and the van wasn't there. (laughs) And and I thought, okay, what happened? (laughs) So I turned around. And if you've ever felt desolate and alone, when you're standing there in the middle of the Arctic and it's 30 below and you see two red lights going away from you, you can imagine how I felt. They're driving down the road. I'm standing there 10 foot with a bear on guard. My first thought was, I know what I'll do. I'm gonna shoot the bear in the eye and I'll stay on that side, so we won't be able to see me. <laughs> and I thought, no, no, I'm not that great a shot. So, so my second thought was, I'll use it as a club, and i will just going to, boom, and it'll be done, and we'll be over with, and I'll be a hero. But what really happened is I started to whisper, and I said, you are one big bear. <laughs> And you got a great meal there, and I am not good-tasting at all. And so I'm just talking as slowly and as calmly as I can, and this bear's kind of looking at me going, What is this guy? So while I'm doing this, I started to take some steps backwards. And I continue to talk with this bear, and he continues to just look at me. And I got about ten steps back, and I said, Now's the time. I turned and I ran. I ran as quick as I could, as fast as I could. I could feel that bear on the back of my neck. I didn't look back, I don't know, but I knew he was coming. I never looked back. And they had stopped, and they had started to go back really slowly. I just kept running, I kept running, I kept running. I got to the van, I opened the door, I pushed her out of the seat, I got in. (laughs) Now, those kids were scared. They weren't scared of the bear, they were scared of my driving. They had never gone that fast in a vehicle before. I was gone. This was on a Friday night. Saturday was fine, you know, uh, didn't hear nothing about it, and so we went to church Sunday morning, I thought, nobody knows, I'm okay. I walked into the church, and everybody stood up and started laughing. They had all heard.
0: Ron Boynton. This is Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. I'm Rob Prince. Dr. Jesse Robertson was coming off the worst period of her life. It started with a divorce and ended when a really bad relationship with a tech music-obsessed boyfriend finally collapsed after several years. Determined to start a new and very different chapter in her life, Jessie decided to take on the challenging Kasugi Ridge Trail in Denali Park. It was an experience that would quickly become a metaphor for her recent life struggles. Here's Jessie.
2: I wanted to do the Kasugi Ridge Trail. This is a point-to-point hike that parallels the park's highway, and it's in Denali State Park. In case you don't know what a point-to-point hike is, where you start the hike is not where you end the hike. So where you end the hike, you have to take a car or a bike or something to get back to the beginning. So the way this Kasugi Ridge Trail is, is when you come from Fairbanks, you typically park at the Little Coal Creek Trailhead, and there's three options to exit the trail. The first is 17 and a half miles and you exit at the Ermine Trail. The second exit, you exit at the Byers Lake Trail, and that's about, I think, 27 miles. And the third exit is the Troublesome Creek Trail, and that's about 36 miles in total. I was intending to do the first leg of this, 17 and a half miles from Little Coal Creek up to Kasugi Ridge and down the Ermine Trail, and I was going to stash a bike in the bushes and ride that the eight miles back to my car. What could go wrong? So, obviously I'm here, so something went wrong. So, I... <laughs> I... Uh, Got out of bed that Sunday morning, and I was like one of those little wind-up cars I had as a kid, you know, the kind you pull back and you let it go. Except I'd been pulled back for four years, right? So I got out of bed, like, I'm going to go. And I get up, and I pack my backpack. I have a can of bear spray, a liter of water, a little bit of food. I'm wearing what would be like a trail running outfit with a cute skirt. And... (laughs) I head to my work because a person who worked for me several years before had abandoned a bike there. So I went and got the bike. I wrestled it into my Subaru, and I was off to the trailhead. And I sang at the top of my lungs because I never had to listen to techno ever again for as long as I live. So <laughs> I got to the trail, and I... Well, so essentially, I drive past the little Coal Creek trailhead to the Ermine trailhead. I stashed the bike in some bushes, and I drive the eight miles back to the little Coal Creek Trailhead. I get out of my car and I head into the forest. And it sounds cliche, but I love the autumn time. The air is crisp. It's alive. It's almost like this fresh feeling took over. And it was the type of forest that I walked into that I'm familiar with because I'm a boreal forest ecologist at UAF. And I saw the birch and aspen trees. The leaves were changing color. And when the sun hit it, it's just like the whole forest glowed. And I could breathe, (laughs) finally breathe, after all these years. And the air just felt crisp and clean. And I just slowly walked along. And I enjoyed the forest. It was beautiful. I passed a pond on my left. I made it to some switchbacks. And I went up the switchbacks, which would lead me to the Ridgeline Trail. And I got to the top, and I looked back across the valley. The park's Highway was in the valley, and everything felt so small in the distance. I saw the Alaska Range across the valley. And in front of me, in the trail, the tundra was starting to turn red and orange. There was still some green. It was this beautiful carpet. So I headed down the trail. And I crossed a rocky area. And after that point is really when the Ridgeline Trail opens up. So I could see this kind of rutted trail going in front of me. And on the right-hand side, it drops off fairly quickly into the valley, and across the valley again was the Alaska Range, and Denali was coming out. And on the left-hand side, there were rolling hills, and there was just this carpet of color in front of me. And I moved at a pretty leisurely pace. I had started this hike from my car at about 1230, so it was nice and late in the day. So (laughs) I had um, my phone, and I turned on the GPS when I started the hike. And I had ripped a page out of the trail guide, the Alaska Trail Guide, and it was a verbal description of the trail, so it wasn't the map. And it's not like it was a mile-by-mile description, it was more like I was looking for major markers. And the primary marker I was looking for was a big rocky area where apparently the turnoff for the Romine Trail is, and I just head down the valley. And since I was really just looking for that marker, I felt fairly relaxed. One of the things I decided is if I was going to turn back, it would have to be before the halfway point, obviously. So, with my GPS, with my phone and this little piece of paper, so I understand uncertainty and variability because I'm a scientist, so I know that the GPS on my phone probably isn't that great. And then this description is okay, except it only really works when I hit these major markers. So, if I put these two pieces of variability together, I might get to where I'm going. So I move along the trail at a leisurely pace, and my brain is quiet for the first time in years, just enjoying the day. And at about 4.30, I hit the midway point. I had gone about eight and a half miles-ish, because I checked the GPS and it wasn't-ish. And what I realized in that moment is I couldn't go back. There was no force on this planet that could make me go back the way that I had come. I couldn't go back to the storm. So I decided to keep pushing forward. There was a fearless momentum to my day. But what I noticed in that instant is that there was actually a storm brewing behind me. (laughs) Now, I'm a reasonably intelligent person, I think, and now I know it's not good to be on a ridgeline when there's a storm, but today was not a day for logic. So I decided to press ahead, and it felt like the storm gave chase. It felt really invigorating to be up there. Just this big sky. So I decided, well, okay, it's 4.30. I have another, like, let's call it nine-ish miles to go. So I should probably start picking up the pace. And I didn't want to race through it because I wanted to enjoy the day. So I started to jog and it started to rain. And then it rained the rest of the day. So (laughs) I'm jogging along and I'm having a pretty good time. I know I need to cover five miles from the midpoint to the rocky area, so I start setting goals for myself. Okay, I'll hit 11 miles at such and such time. I'm doing okay. I'm starting to get a little, a little worried with my uncertainty here in my hands as I try to find the rocks. Getting a little anxious. Still enjoying my day, and then finally, I see the rocks, and I think, "Great! All I have to do is head down the trail, get on the bike." So. I get to the rocky area and it is my impression that the turnoff mountain trail should be right there so and it's not a small rocky area it's just kind of a decent size so I start following little spur trails some go in the wrong direction some just cut off I, I'm starting to get confused I was started looking for 20 minutes you know this time it's probably about 6 o'clock and the day is definitely aging And I just start to panic, because one of the things in the pit of my stomach is that if I miss the turnoff for the Ermine Trail, there won't be another turnoff for another, I don't know, 10 miles or something. So what's interesting about having a brain that's been under a lot of stress and anxiety for three to four years, basically a traumatized brain, is it's as if tracks are laid in it for these intense feelings to come in and take over and just cocoon your body. So these feelings don't just sneak in the door, they kick open the door. So anxiety, fear, helplessness, hopelessness, worthlessness, and they just started sinking in and they just moved right into those tracks and it gripped my brain and it took over all of my cells and I just felt paralyzed. And I just sunk down into this black hole that I'd sunk into so many times over the years and I sat on the ground and it just encompassed me and I felt paralyzed. And I had felt this way so many times over the years, like I'd been sitting on the floor of my cabin again. And I was wet, and I was cold, and I was out of food, and I didn't have a flashlight. And the only person who knew exactly where I was (laughs) was coming back from a hunting trip late that night. So there I was. And I was pretty convinced I was lost. And then this little light started to grow in me again. And it was the same light that grew the week before when I dragged all my crap into the driveway. And it grew. And it grew like this fight. And I call it my inner Bon Jovi, where <laughs> you live for the fight when that's all that you've got. And <laughs> that's what I had. I had my fight. And that's what grew. And it grew. And it grew. And I had this, like, Wait a goddamn minute. (laughs) This is a solvable problem. (laughs) I have my GPS, you know, it's wet, and I have my wet piece of paper, and these two things say, this thing says I've gone about five miles, and this thing says I'm supposed to turn off on a trail by some rocks. Now I check with the jury, we're on Kasugi Ridge, right? Yes, we are. So I just decide this is a solvable problem, damn it. And so I get up. Pull myself together and I start looking around the rocks some more, convinced this trail should go off into the valley. And I'm convinced our brains don't let us see things until we're ready to see them. So I went to the other side of the rocks and I found the continuation of the Kasugi Trail. So I jumped on that, head down that, and sure enough, off in the saddle, I see a small trail heading off to the right, and I think, damn, I made it. So if I get on that trail, all I have to do is take it's another four miles back to the bike. No problem. If I'm running a good clip, I could do that in under an hour. So, I hang a hard right, I go down the ermine trail, and I actually couldn't run it, and here's why. So, it was actually pretty muddy, and it was that deep mud where it's over your ankle, sometimes up to your shin, so I tried this business. Um, But the, the trail was flanked on either side by pretty dense shrubs that were tall. So there are a couple things going on. And the first thing is that when I had to step back into the mud, there was this, um, it would, I got, my, my shoe would get sucked off. So I'd have to put my shoe back on and then, and then put it back on. (laughs) and then some of this and I was nervous as well because I've worked in the field alone quite a bit and I know that feeling in the pit of my stomach when I'm in shrubs and uh, I know that a bear can very easily charge through the shrubs and kill me so I got out my bear spray and at that point commenced a four-mile screaming monologue (laughs) it started off with hey bear and then it ended with all kinds of other things I think I vented a lot of anger while getting rid of the bear so I, for a while, and then I end up at the top of these switchbacks, and there's actually a root ladder that cuts off about a half a mile, which would have been useful at this point because it was feeling pretty dark and the clouds made it feel darker. Well, the root ladder was pretty wet and it would have gone down on my face very likely, so I decided to take the switchbacks down. So I, went, I thought that my bike would be at the bottom of the switchbacks and then... I'm out of there. So I get to the bottom of the switchbacks and I end up in the forest. So what I didn't realize is there is still another, let's call it, two-ish miles to go. <sighs> okay, so this time, at this point, I'm absolutely soaked to the bone. I'm shaking, I'm shivering really hard. I'd run out of food. I didn't feel like drinking water anymore. I was exhausted. I was not anticipating running this far that day, but I kept going. And then I started to see the fresh bear tracks and realized maybe running isn't the greatest idea. I was afraid something would give chase, so I did sort of this speed walk jog thing. And then, as if to, like, add a crown to the day, I slipped in this giant mud puddle, and mud went everywhere. It went in my underwear, up my shirt, in my hair, on my face, everywhere. (laughs) God! So I get up, (laughs) and... I continue my little walk dog thing, looking for the bear and shouting. Then by 8 o'clock at night, I see a break in the forest. I see the highway. I hear the cars, and I think, all I have to do is get on my bike and ride the eight miles to the car. So I get to my bike, and what's interesting at this point is, like, so I'm numb. I'm numb with my fingertips up my arms, my toes, up my legs. The only part that isn't numb is, like, right here. So... And what's interesting about that is my brain started to change. I found it very hard to make decisions. Even the decision to get on the bicycle was hard. But I get on the bike, I start pedaling. I'm lucky the cars can still see me at eight o'clock. And it's really hard to ride. I'm thinking, what the hell is going on? And I look down and the, the brake pads were actually, look like they're attached to the, um, like stuck to the wheels. I don't know the component parts, sorry. So I jumped off and I undid the brake pads and I thought, all right, here we go. And get back on. It was easier to ride, but it was still hard and the chain kept falling off. So I looked down and everything was rusted. And so I sort of... <laughs> And I was getting splashed by cars, because that's what happens. And I pull off periodically to cry. There was like a, a gravel ditch. <laughs> there was a gravel, a gravel area on the side of the road. And I got off and I cried. And then I made the decision to get back on the bike. And I <laughs> And an hour and a half later, it took me an hour and a half to go eight miles, I uh, made it back to the little Cole Creek uh, parking lot. So I looked at this bike and now understood clearly why it had been abandoned. (laughs) So I threw it into a ditch, and I uh, went to my car, and as we learned from Amanda, you got to get naked if you're really cold and wet. So I took off all of my clothes in the little Cole creek parking lot, because whatever. And I'm pretty disorganized and messy, so there was enough kind of clothes in my car that I could sort out an outfit. And I didn't have underwear. I didn't have socks. No underwear socks, but I kind of made it work, and I put it on. And it was muddy and ridiculous. And then I got in my car and turned it on and started warming up. And I remember gripping the steering wheel like, (laughs) (laughs) oh, my god. I did it. So I, um, <laughs> I realized a woman did die up on that ridge, and it, it was the woman that put up with bullshit. So she's dead. <laughs> and um, I drove to the nearest gas station, whatever that was, and I looked pretty disheveled, and it was sort of a, where's the Snickers? <laughs> And I filled my arms with Snickers and potato chips and Coca-Cola. And the guy behind the counter was like, what is this? And um, I got in my car and (laughs) made it home a little bit after midnight. And um, about 12.30. So about 12 hours after this whole thing started. And then I started therapy the next week. (laughs) 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 So... That day reminds me of my favorite poem of all time by William Ernest Henley called Invictus and I won't read the whole thing but the part that this reminds me of is this in the fell clutch of circumstance I have not winced nor cried aloud under the bludgeonings of chance my head is bloody but unbowed so that day is important to me because I had to walk to the edge and look off to know where the edge is and to remind myself that I'm still here and that I deserve to take up space on this planet, that I deserve to set limits and have those limits be respected. So, if you ever feel like you need to walk to the edge and look off to reassert whatever it is you need to learn about yourself, here's my suggestion. Bring a friend. (laughs) Bring a tent. (laughs) Bring a GPS. And bring a functional bicycle.
0: Dr. Jesse Robertson. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dark Winter Nights, True Stories from Alaska. This episode was edited by Ryan Peterson and myself, Rob Prince. Story consultation by Lori Neufeld. Audio recording of our storytellers by Alaska Universal Productions. Hey, would you like to see Dark Winter Nights live and in person? Our next live event is coming right up on November 17th. In Lathrop High School's Herring Auditorium. Tickets are on sale now at darkwinternights.com. You can get more information there as well. We hope to see you there Saturday, November 17, 7 o'clock p.m. Remember, these are the stories we tell up here in Alaska on Dark Winter Nights. I'm Rob Prince.